The readings for this morning continue. Um, I haven't preached about Amos, and that will come up, but uh, today you can see in the uh, book of Amos the beginnings of the the conscience of the people of the covenant, and this hick farmer from Tekoa has come to the shrine at Bethel, and he's letting them have it, and uh, not, not without reason. But it may be just of interest to us to know that in recent times, it isn't just the butcher who put his thumb on the scale. Um, I want to preach on Colossians and on the reading from the gospel. And the first reading from the, the gospel has to do with the importance and the development of Christian maturity. And it relates in some sense to the gospel, which is the famous story of Mary and Martha, which raises in the biblical context the issues between the active and the contemplative life. And what do we mean when we use that terminology? And how do we understand that in in our own lives? Uh, As a pastor, I, in the last... 10 or 15 years, one of the issues that I hear about a lot from people is balance. The issue of trying to balance their life between the demands of their work and their vocation, their family obligations, time for themselves, and uh, the desire to be able to uh, have some leisure. And I mean by leisure what I said in the the short letter I wrote in in the newsletter, which is uh, what Josef Pieper thinks about that. And leisure is a time not just um, merely for going on vacation, but it may have something to do with uh, spending some time uh, seriously about who you are, what you're doing, and um, uh, improving that side of your character. So let me move to Colossians and say some things in the beginning, like I did about Galatians, so that you'll understand... Uh, the points of view that are are shared by some biblical scholars and also the importance of the epistle to the Colossians and why we're reading it now. Um, Most biblical scholars would say Colossians was written towards the end of Paul's life in prison, uh, somewhere between 58 and 62 A.D. There is a point, if you study the, the scholarship, Uh, Biblical scholars are pretty much divided evenly about whether or not Paul wrote Colossians. Um, There are seven letters in the New Testament. There are 14 letters attributed to Paul in the New Testament, and seven of them are undoubtedly Pauline. But there's some disputes about the other letters, and Colossians and Ephesians are two of them. Uh, My personal view is I think Paul wrote them, and I'm going to explain why in a minute. But they do reflect a theological outlook that is uh, different than the earlier letters and the undoubtedly Pauline letters. And my own theory of that is that uh, it's quite possible for a person to have a point of view and then have it mature as they begin to to, uh, uh, engage the pastoral realities on the ground. 
because Paul's sense of urgency in the uh, undoubted letters has something to do with the view that he believed that Jesus was going to come again at any time. The kingdom would finally come to fruition here, and we would now realize what the promises of God are all about. And in places like Colossae and Ephesus and, and maybe some others, people were going, well, they said he was going to come any minute, but he's not here yet. You know, what are we going to do? And we have some questions about our common life together. We have some uh, questions about our internal, emotional, spiritual, and mental states. What is it that we're going to think about uh, making spiritual progress in the course of the reality that he hasn't come yet and figuring out the possibility that it may be we're part of the reason because we're needed for God's plan to come to fruition. We're needed to implement uh, the kingdom of God together with God in God's space and we've got to begin to understand the implications of that both internally and also externally as a community of faith in the people of God. This is what we need to do and Colossians uh, expands on this theme. One of my favorite lines like Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, one of my favorite lines uh, in, in the New Testament is at the conclusion uh, of this reading today. But first I should say to you the first part of uh, verses 15 through 28 is, a, is an early liturgical hymn that uh, Paul wrote or put into uh, the gospel, or, or excuse me, his letter. And then he begins to talk about the implications of the responsibilities of the community. Often uh, the concluding line, which I'll say to you now, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. One of the best sermons I ever heard preached was when I was a young priest in England and went to England and was uh, in church at All Saints Margaret Street. And an old retired priest from somewhere, Father John Shand, I still remember it, got up and preached on that every, we, we may present everyone mature in Christ. And what does it mean? And now we understand, I think, uh, more fully over the last 35 or 40 years, that responsibility does not reside with the clergy exclusively. It's not just our job to present everybody mature in Christ. It's the body of Christ's uh, obligation to present everybody mature in Christ. All of us are engaged in some species of ministry, or we might wish to say building up the body of Christ, and by extension, creating the internal maturity, self-regulation, and strength to be able to reflect that back to the world. And so Paul today is speaking about that necessity to present everyone mature in Christ. There's a lot of ways to describe maturity. One of them is maturity is taking responsibility for your own being and destiny. So how do we understand what that might mean uh, as we seek to be faithful? There are other things we can say that would describe maturity, and Father Thomas Keating has something to say about that in his comments on the gospel, which, are the which is the story of Mary and Martha. This is sort of a famous story. It's the, the uh, juxtaposition of the active and the contemplative life. 
it's also a scene and an event that is something that uh, is not just ancient, is it? It occurs all the time. In family life, uh, people who end up over-functioning with regard to certain household duties can build up resentments with regard to feeling like they have the whole load on their shoulders. And it seems today that Jesus has sided with the, the person sitting at his feet. Right? So Martha is annoyed by this. Everybody's benefiting from her over-functioning. And she remonstrates with Jesus and says, aren't you going to tell her to get up and help me? I'm overburdened. And people are saying, is there coffee? <laughs> you know, I'm up trying to get all this stuff, and how am I going to do something about that? And so we do have to know something about the framework of the ancient Near East because uh, disciples sat at the feet of the person that they were a disciple of, and what Martha was doing was listening. And so Jesus tells Martha that she's too distracted. Distracted with too much serving. And Mary has chosen the better part. It must have grated. <laughs> so here's what... Uh, Father Keating speaks about this in a very monastic sense, and when he speaks about the contemplative life, first of all, he's going to say something about purity of intention. Why you do what you do? Why are you doing what you're doing? Purity of intention developed through contemplation brings to action the quality of love. Without contemplative prayer, action easily becomes mechanical, routine, draining, and may lead to burnout. At the very least, it fails to perceive the gold mine that ordinary life contains. Daily life is practice, number one, for a Christian, but it can cease to be a practice without the discipline of contemplative prayer. The contemplative dimension of the gospel perceives in daily life the treasures of holiness hidden in the most trivial and mundane events. Mother Teresa of Avila said, or Avila said, that if you find yourself in the kitchen among the pots and the pans, then you've got to find God amidst the pots and the pans. Right? Brother Lawrence, those little pamphlets that Forward Movement Publication circulates, you know, the practice of the presence of God all about doing this in the everyday and the commonplace. In Buddhism, we talk about mindfulness. If you're washing the dishes, pay attention to exactly what you're doing while you're washing the dish. Focus on these kinds of things. But Keating is not uh, giving us a commercial message for the monastic life or the contemplative life. His whole ministry has been about saying we have had this wrong for so long that we believe that contemplation was the private reserve of a select few people who had special gifts that would allow them to be able to do that. And so he began to develop this thing called contemplative outreach, 
which had to do with saying, you can do this in your everyday life, and it's important. I just uh, have been rereading a book by Ken Wilber called um, The Marriage of Sense and Soul. And Ken Wilber uh, is, is, I would guess, uh, maybe his religious commitments would be Buddhist, but he's a great friend of Thomas Keating, and they have an annual conference at Snowmass, Colorado, where they talk about these kinds of things. And Wilbur is very, very interested in how the, the uh, separation between science and religion can be put back together. Because he's absolutely convinced that science is necessary and science has found out some stuff that uh, religious people ignore at their own risk. And yet at the same time, the hostility that exists between both camps, certainly science with regard to religion as just being an inconvenience and so highly subjective that you can't get to any measurable truth, that we need to begin to say, well, is there a way that we can enlist science to give some support to the religious commitments that people have about their own spiritual life and condition? And so one of the things that he said in in a lecture that I heard him give on YouTube with Thomas Keating was that there actually exists now some hard science with regard to the use of contemplation and the improvement of your emotional, spiritual, and mental states as it is done on a regular basis. So there are a lot of things that we could say in detail about what does that mean But what we can say about what it means is is that sometimes you have to be still and know that I am God, to sit in the presence of God, to do nothing for 20 minutes every day, right? You may be able to learn how to engage in the contemplative practices that are recommended. That's another uh, time for another time. But it has to do with being still and being with God and feeling now that you are connected to God. Keating would say that the contemplative exercise is you begin and in terms of your uh, psychosocial development, you begin to realize there's you, then you realize there's the other, And then there's the realization there's a relationship between you and the other. And then there's the final relationship that you're not separate, but you're one. It's one thing. We are not God, but our true self is God. So Keating would say, here's the thing. We have to understand that it isn't either action or contemplation. It's both. So the contemplative life also needs to function in some active way in the world, in the cosmos. But it is refreshed and animated by being able to sit in the presence. And this is really what Jesus is saying to Martha about this. How much do we get sidetracked on a daily basis with the minutiae of running the institution, right? 
I never realized when I was in seminary until I got out and was the, the assistant priest at St. Michael and All Angels in Tucson, Arizona, that I needed to have some skills with regard to running a mimeograph machine. <laughs> right? That you needed to do that or you needed to know at least how to unclog a toilet. See? I thought I was uh, set aside for a far more loftier undertaking. <laughs> That's right, yeah. I mean, I have to say, I made a huge mistake for about the first seven years of my ministry. I thought um, that um, I had a, have had a business background. I have an MBA in my murky past. And I thought I had to spend those years unlearning this because in some, somehow it was in opposition to what I now have become. <laughs> that, you know, this is the kind of stuff you can get yourself into. I, I, I thought of that in my contemplative moment. <laughs> right? So that may say to us there's something called good contemplation and bad contemplation. <laughs> you know? <laughs> You can make some serious thinking errors in your life. So maybe it's a good idea to understand how the former things uh, influence, uh, not just in a negative, but in a positive way about who you are and what you're going to be able to do. So in this reading from Luke's Gospel, uh, that's what it's about. And I expect the, the pastoral reality on the ground was... Uh, in Luke's community, they had people who were sitting around waiting for the coming of Jesus and felt that they needed to spend all that time doing this, sitting quietly, not working, uh, just doing, you know, what they thought they were supposed to say in their prayers, you know, doing this sort of stuff. And they didn't understand that the commonplace and the mundane uh, is the location for uh, achieving some spiritual wisdom. So this week, think about the importance of both the contemplative and the active life. Uh, just be quiet uh, during the day, at least for a little time, and then maybe you can sort of get a little bigger and bigger, and you'll begin to understand uh, what, what it's all about. Here's one of the pitfalls of the contemplative life. I'll tell you this right now. If, when you start this process, there's a whole lot of stuff that's going to come up, you know, as it evacuates what he would call the false self system, security and survival, affection and esteem, power and control. That's all going to come up, and it's going to just uh, make you panicky. And what he says is it's like sitting in a beach chair in front of the Suez Canal when all the ships are going by like this. So when that stuff comes up and it's going right in front of you, go like this. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. It has no more power. So spend some time thinking about how you might do that. And then uh, that will help you focus in a deeper and fuller way on what action you need to take. As the people of God, we have an obligation, for example, you hear me say this all the time, of creating a society where it is easier for people to be good. And so we have to figure out what our part is in that. 
and how do we strengthen in this in, in the community, the wider world, all the things that it does that are good and noble, and how we speak the truth to power about the things that are causing great hurt and difficulty. And if we do that, um, we'll be faithful to the balance that needs to be achieved between the active and the contemplative. Amen.